In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount the attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in a league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps or firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus saith the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of your Lord God, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to, to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall, be, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. I want to talk about the incarnation this morning. Christ, the Word, He took on flesh, and the Bible says He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. Uh, the second person of the Trinity, he, he was here on earth. He lived and breathed and walked this earth among sinful man, and He did so to reveal several things. What God was like. Well, how would God handle that situation? Well, let's open up the Gospels. What did Jesus, what did he do? How did he handle that? Uh, the second thing that he uh, did was he was showed us what, how we should live our lives, to be our exemplar. And thirdly, of course, is he, he came and took on flesh to make atonement for sinners like you and me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 Peter writes, he, he mentions the word salvation in verse 9, and it's, he goes off on this little tangent. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, the glories there is his resurrection, right? 
it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the Spirit of Christ, hundreds of years before Jesus took on flesh, predicted his own death and his own resurrection. And so today, we're going to look at some of those predictions, some of those prophecies as the Spirit of Christ move in the hearts of these prophets, speaking truth of what was to come years later. So several things we're going to talk about today, pretty much just the prophecies in three points. Number one, first is we're going to talk about the pre-incarnate Christ. The incarnation means that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and became a man and dwelt among us and walked this earth. The pre-incarnate Christ, speaking of his pre-existence, before he became a man, he already existed. Think about it. If the Spirit of Christ predicted his death and resurrection hundreds of years before he arrived in, in bodily form, then Jesus had to exist already. Before the second person of the Trinity became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, he existed eternally as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Now, bear with me here. Something you, you may, oh, some of you are going, oh, yeah, of course. And some of you are going, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? So bear with me. We're going to get somewhere here. Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't come into existence in his totality the way we do. I mean, think about how we, we're conceived, right? Before we were conceived in our mother's womb, we didn't exist, there's this miracle of reproduction that takes place, right? It's really incredible. Think about a man and a woman given by God the ability to give life and there's to give an existence to a person who's created in the image of God. Bruce Ware, he writes, it really is an astonishing thing when you realize it. Conception, what takes place when a person their personhood starts, where they begin, where they're created, it parallels what God did in the Garden of Eden in making Adam from the dust of the ground and making Eve from the rib of Adam. Here we make people through sexual reproduction. Clearly the human nature of Jesus was produced as we are at that moment. In other words, I'm not claiming that the human nature of Jesus lived eternally, but incarnation and incarnation means that God in the person of the Son came and united with his new formerly human nature in the conception that took place in Mary. He continues to write, that assumes that there was, there was one who existed before who united with the human nature that began at the conception of Jesus. So Jesus as the eternal Son of the Father, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity existed before his incarnation. Now we see that elsewhere. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is what we're talking about with the Exodus, right? And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. What, are they, what is that referring to? Do you remember the Exodus? Water from a rock, manna from heaven, quail given by the Lord. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that's, that rock was what? Christ. We see the preexistence of the second person of the Trinity. 
before the incarnation, before he took on flesh, Caleb, the second person of the Trinity, already existed. John, we see this probably most clearly in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus, right? He was in the, the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and, the, and life was the light of men. Pretty straightforward there, isn't it? Verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory glory as one of the only son from the father full of grace and truth so the word the son of god existed eternally in fact he created the world so the son of god existed this is referring of course to his person not his humanity his humanity began in the womb of mary when she conceived by the holy spirit and this is important you think well Okay, this is something I've never thought of, or some of you are thinking, yeah, this is elementary, Watson. Come on, move on. But I think it's important for, for several reasons, but one I want to point out to you, I read this week, John Piper, he writes about this, um, the, the idea that, that, that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, existed, has existed eternally, forever. There's never been a time where he wasn't. He writes, The Son of God in heaven has been contemplating his suffering and his death for us for centuries. And I would say for millennia, right? Indeed, as far back as the plan of salvation reaches in the mind of God, so far back has Christ been willing and ready to give himself for our sins. You were not loved for just a bloody moment of sacrifice in history, right? That moment when Jesus was nailed to a cross. But you have been loved for endless ages in the eternal plan of the Father and the Son to save sinners who trust in Him. Kind of interesting to think about. Think about, does God love you? Does Jesus love you? And you think, yeah, He loves me. You know what? He's loved you since time began, since before time began. The this plan, this, this, this idea of making atonement for sin and saving sinners. He's loved you that long. Isn't that interesting? And there's other New Testament texts that give evidence of the Son of God being eternal. Galatians 4, verse 4. And we're going to be a lot of Scripture. If you're taking notes, just jot them down, just listen. This is a little bit different than what we're doing. I was gonna, we're going to look in Isaiah 7, the passage that Jeff read for. Jeff does a good job reading, doesn't he? Man, he even, he even pronounced those names right, I think, right? Sometimes people say, how do you pronounce that word there? I was like, whew, let me, let's work on that a little bit. He does a great job. But he, I was going to settle there and just spend most of our time even in, in chapter 7 and chapter 9 of Isaiah. But anyway, we're just kind of broadening it, kind of hitting high points, give our small group leaders something to do this week. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, God's son existed already if, if he's being sent 
forth, right? He had to already exist. John 17, 5, this is Jesus, the high priestly prayer, that awesome chapter, John 17. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? Jesus, yeah, he existed before the world began. Yeah, he spoke it into existence. That's something. John chapter 8, verse 58, there people were arguing him about his relationship to Abraham and, and his claim that he was the son of God. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That gives us an eternal pre-existing relationship there. And we could read many others, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. The first thing, yeah, there's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, existed before the incarnation. He has always existed. He's eternal. The second thing I want to point out to you real quickly is we just see this hints of the incarnation in redemptive history. Just real broad hints, mentions of Jesus becoming uh, man, taken on flesh. And, and the first is, think about creation. God created the world and he set Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them dominion over all things, right? And then he told Adam and Eve, you can eat from every tree of the garden, but you can't, tree, can't eat from this one tree. And that was a tree of what? Knowledge, good and evil. Yeah, you can't eat from that tree. And what happened, they, um, Eve was deceived by the serpent, and she ate, and she gave to her husband. And old boneheaded Adam, what'd he do? He ate too, right? He didn't eat it because he was boneheaded. He ate it because he was rebellious. But he ate it, right? And they, were, they sinned and sinned into the world. And as a result of that, terrible consequences, right? We're suffering the consequences of that today. But one of the consequences was God cursed the serpent, firstly. Then he cursed Eve, and then he cursed Adam. And so the serpent, do you remember what, what he did when he cursed the serpent? What was the curses of the serpent? There were two in particular. That's right. Good, Michael. The first one is he'll, he'll, you'll have to crawl on your belly and eat dust all your days. That was the first one. And the second one was that the descendant of, the, of Eve would be your demise. Genesis chapter 3, this is the first time that we have mention of the gospel. Like I said, this it's just hints of what's to come. Just hints of what's to come. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is a very important verse in, in redemptive history. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, speaking of descendant of the woman, who we know that descendant to be yeah, the incarnate Christ, right? So there's the first mention of the gospel. Adam and Eve, they rebelled. They were cast out of the garden to labor for their food. And, and fast forward several hundred years, you see another glimpse when you see Abraham. Abraham was called by God, um, told by God to go to a, a place he did not know, and he trusted God. And the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was the father of the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation. And God made a, a covenant with Abraham because Abraham trusted him. He says, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. He didn't know. He'd never been there. And I will make you a 
great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, or through you, all the nations, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, this is just a hint. We see a hint in, in Genesis 3, 5. There's a, the descendant of the woman will, will bruise your head. And then we see a hint of it here. Through you, Abraham, the father of the Israelites, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, how is that, how is that to come to be? How is that to happen? It's through not just Abraham, but through his descendant, Jesus Christ. How many of you are Jewish? Any, we have any Messianic Jews in the house? Yeah, we're all Gentiles, right? We're not Jewish. We're recipients of the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic blessing. Through Abrahamic's, Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, we are blessed. We can know the Father and have a relationship with him. Right? Because of our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. So these are just a few, and we could talk about many more. These are just a few of hints, just kind of broad strokes throughout redemptive history of, of yeah, Jesus is, is going to come and do a, do a great work for us on our behalf. These are just hints of it. But now the third thing that I want to see is this specific prediction of the incarnation, more specific things. And the first thing I want to mention is just the timing of his incarnation. We've already uh, read Galatians 4. I just want to read it again. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of time, right? What does that in the fullness of time mean? Yeah. Yeah, just at the right time, right? Just at the right time. Just when it was, when God ordained it to happen. Perfect timing. Jesus uh, was sent forth. Born of a woman, born under the law. According to Genesis 49.10, the Messiah, he was to come before the destruction of, of the Jewish nation, the Jewish government. This was seen, it seemed to be pointing towards the uh, time before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. Genesis 49, um, verse 10, this is Jacob, he's, a, he's about to die. You remember you have Abraham, had Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, right? Jacob had 12 sons. Well, Jacob is about to bless his 12 sons right before he dies. And this is what he says uh, to Judah in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Again, we see uh, in Malachi chapter 3, 1, the same prediction. Again, keep it in mind, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so the Lord has to come before that date, it seems, and that's what Malachi 3, 1 seems to predict. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant to whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So kind of more specific prophecies. Well, when's, when's Jesus going to come? When it has to be before this time when the, the temple is destroyed. So this is getting a little bit more specific. What about uh, his virgin birth? You're talking about specific. How many, time, how many virgin births we had lately? This is prophesied. 500 years before Jesus was born. It was during Isaiah's day, the prophet Isaiah, and this is the text that Jeff read for us, give you the context of that. There were two kings. One was the king of the northern kingdom. Keep in mind, you have the nation of Israel. This is during the time 
when the nation had been divided. Remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, during his reign, the kingdom split. And you had the southern kingdom, Judah, northern kingdom, Israel. And there, you'd think, well, because they are still part of the nation of Israel as a whole, they wouldn't fight very much. Well, that's like saying your, your children, right? Siblings don't fight. Do they fight? Yeah, sometimes they do. Well, in this case, that's what happened. The king from the north, he decided to form allegiance and alliance with another pagan nation and war against Judah. And that's the, the text that Jeff read for us in Isaiah chapter 7. And the king of Judah was the wicked king Ahaz. Whenever you have a wicked king, there's always trouble. God's people always had difficulty when they had a terrible leader. And so what happens is there's the, these two nations are going to come war against them. And so what does Ahaz do? Ahaz decides, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to go to this other nation who are more mighty than these, the nation, the pagan nation of Assyria, and I'm going to ask for help. And so he's going to form alliance with this pagan nation. In the text we read, God sends Isaiah to intercept Ahaz and to tell him, look, don't, don't do this. And why was that such a bad idea? Why, why, why should Ahaz not form alliance with Assyria? It's because they're pagan. And if you form alliance with the pagan nations, what's going to happen? That alliance and that, that relationship with that pagan nation is going to lead your people astray. And you're not going to trust the Lord as you should. And so Isaiah chapter 7, verse 11 and 12 Ask a sign of the Lord, Isaiah told Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, ask for any sign. And it's funny when you look for signs in the, in the Old Testament, you think about, I always think about Gideon. You know, he laid out the fleece and say, well, Lord, I know you just told me this is what you want me to do, but just to make sure I'm hearing you right, I'm going to lay out this fleece and this is what I want to see happen. Well, it happened. He said, well, all right, God, I understand you don't want me to lay out this fleece and you want me to trust your word, but I don't really trust you. I'm going to lay out a fleece again instead of being wet like it was last night. How about tonight? It's dry. That wasn't a God-honoring thing, but God was gracious to him anyway. But here we see God saying, hey, ask, ask for a sign. I'll show you a sign that I'm really going to take care of you. You don't need to trust in Assyria and these pagan nations. I'm the Lord, the creator God. I can take care of you. Just trust in me. Don't form alliance with these pagan nations. He says, well, I'm not going to ask for a sign because why? Ahaz had in his mind what he wanted to do anyway. And so what was this sign? It's interesting. You have this unusual verse in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, keep in mind, God had promised David, we call it the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He told David, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have one of your descendants on the throne forever. You're going to have an eternal kingdom. And God says, I'm big enough to take care of that promise and keep that promise. Don't align yourself with this pagan nation. And all of a sudden you have this mention of a virgin having a child. God's going to do whatever he has to do. He'll, he'll even do it miraculously. Through miraculous means to take care of you and protect his people. To preserve the line of David and the kingship of Judah. And then we see, don't we, years later... 
the fulfillment of this amazing prophecy was announced to Mary's fiance Joseph. If Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married, and Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, so he's thinking because he loves the Lord, he's a righteous man. He says, "I'm not going to embarrass her. I'm going to divorce her, put her away privately." And in that night, Gabriel comes to him and speaks to him in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She hasn't been messing around, Joseph. She's honest and pure and right. She's going to have a child, but... This is not going to be your ordinary child. There hadn't been a, another virgin birth documented in all of human history compared to the how many billions of normal births since Adam and Eve, right? It's a miracle. And these are, you know, we, we talk about broad prophecies, things that are kind of vague and hints, but here we see very specific things. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be a virgin is going to have this child. I, that's what I can do. God's saying, that's what I can do, Ahaz. Just trust me. And yet years, 500 years later, we see this coming to fulfillment as Jesus takes on flesh and becomes a man. What about the place of Jesus' birth? It's interesting in, in Matthew, and I'll encourage you, I don't know what you're doing with your your devotional time with your family, but I'll encourage you, take time, Matthew and Luke, they have the birth narratives, and to read through those several times with your children. And Matthew is incredible, because Matthew is, is, is written, Matthew on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing his words, this gospel, and it's going towards, to, to it's for a Jewish audience. And so he used a lot of Old Testament prophecies. And you'll see over and over again these first few chapters of Matthew, this, is, this occurred to fulfill the Scriptures. You see it over and over and over again. And one of them we see that's fulfilled is the place of Jesus' birth. Like I said, where you have some really broad prophecies, really vague, just hints of what God is doing. And all of a sudden we see very specific prophecies as well. Matthew chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. They told him, um, and what's happening here... Um, let me, let me read it. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And this is where Matthew, he's quoting Micah, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you remember the wise men? They came to, to Jerusalem, and they've been following the star. And they said, hey, we're here to, to worship the king of the Jews. We've been following his star. And you remember what happened after that? Caused quite a stir, didn't it? Because he said, I'm, uh, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And who was the, the supposed king of the Jews at the time? It was Herod, right? He wasn't really a nice fella. So when he hears this, what does he do? He, he calls the scribes to himself and says, hey, where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? Of course, they knew the Old Testament, didn't they? They said, oh, it's in Bethlehem. So what does Herod do? sweet fellow that he was, sent and had all the, the infants and all the young boys killed in Bethlehem. But we see the place of the birth being prophesied hundreds of years before. Also that, that he would be 
king of the line of David. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He would be a descendant of David. That was told time and time again in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, turn to Isaiah chapter 9, if you would. If you're not there, if you if you're, have your black pew Bible, it's, it's page 680. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, and again, the context is that Judah is about to be overrun, not just by these, these two uh, alliance, two nations that had formed an alliance, but also Assyria. And what we see here, let's read this together, verses 1 through 7. Again, this prophecy that, that Jesus would come and take on flesh, but he would be a king of, uh, in the line of David. And, and it seems that, that all seems lost. Remember the context. These other kingdoms are coming upon Judah, and they're about to destroy the nation. And you're going to see these two um, nations mentioned, Naphtali and Zebulun. Of course, there are two tribes, right, of Israel. But they're the, the first two tribes that get gobbled up by the by the Assyrian invasion. Remember the first exile, the northern kingdom in 722 B.C.? These first two nations are the ones that are gobbled up by Assyria first. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Again, the context is there's no hope for, for Judah. They're about, about to be overrun by these enemy nations. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's what happened. Assyria ended up taking them um, captive and exile first. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Forevermore means forever. There's going to be this eternal kingdom. Remember the Davidic covenant, the promise God gave David? You're going to have a, an heir on the throne forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And lastly, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. It's interesting in, in verse 3, you see this uh, prophetic past tense. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad with the. the and sometimes that's what makes this, these prophecies really hard, John. As you read through them, you can't make heads or tails of when this is taking place. He doesn't always write in chronological order, but what he does is called the prophetic past tense. He's saying, he's acting like this has already happened. It hadn't happened yet. They're in despair. They're about to be overrun. It looks hopeless for Judah. But he's prophesying as if it's already happened. And why does he do that? It's just a way to let him know, look, God's got this. 
It's going to be okay. God promised to establish David's throne forever. But that promise couldn't be fulfilled apart from the righteous reign of the faithful son of David. You have these terrible leaders. Ahaz was a terrible pagan king. It looked like all was lost. But you see this prophecy. How's God going to resolve this predicament? David's descendants are unfaithful to the Lord. But what's God going to do? He's going to supply the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of faith, the faithful son of David himself and the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And then that last, that last passage is kind of an odd statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What in the world? It kind of like hmm, makes you scratch your head. But I think what it means is the Lord's going to do this and it's by his grace. The Lord's going to accomplish this. Your, your situation is hopeless, but look what God's going to do. And there's so many other prophecies that we could look at. I mean, just to name a few really quickly, he would have a forerunner Malachi chapter 3, remember? Point about having a forerunner, somebody to prepare the way. We read that just a moment ago. That's John the Baptist, right? He'd be betrayed, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. He would be a Nazarene. Right? Yeah, he grew up in Nazareth. His, and not just of his incarnation, but of his life and his, his, his ministry and his death. His hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22. He would be crucified beside thieves, Isaiah 53. His clothes, what would happen to his clothes as his crucifixion? Well, they would cast lots for his clothes. That's what soldiers did back in the day, right? You got the loot. Whatever was left of the, of the person being executed, you got to divide among yourselves. Well, that was prophesied too in uh, Psalm 22. His bones, the thieves on the, beside him, on his right and left, their legs were broken. What happened with Jesus? His, his bones weren't broken. Well, that was a prophecy. Really specific, wasn't it? Psalm 34, 20. And he would be buried. Where would he be buried? He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. Well, that's to foretold in Isaiah 53, verse 9 as well. A lot of specific prophecies, hundreds of them, that were fulfilled when Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem that incredible night. And all the things would happen for the next 33 years, fulfilling all the things that God said would happen. God knew it would happen. He said it would happen, and it happened just as he said it would happen. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to conclude here. The passage we looked at uh, firstly today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. P Peter highlights the, the value of our salvation by telling us in verse 12 that the Holy Spirit himself sent from heaven has brought us the news of salvation through the gospel. In fact, that's what's happening right now. We talk about Jesus taking on flesh and becoming a man. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because we're all sinners, rebellious we live our lives like this we live our lives like this to the Lord and because of that we're going to suffer the wrath of God and rightly so because that's what we deserve we don't have a relationship with God we're in enmity with God it's the way we live our lives think about your life this week if you're not a believer think about your life and how you live your life did you think about Lord I want to submit myself to you I want to obey you today no you didn't you lived your life saying I'm going to do what I want to do and because of that, when you breathe your last, God's going to pour out his wrath upon you for all eternity in hell. And that's what you deserve. And that's the right thing for God to do. You know that? That's the right thing for God to do to each and every one of us. 
See, God's a God of justice. He makes everything right. You think, oh, there's so much injustice in the world. And there is, but you know what? It won't be unjust forever. Because in the end, there will be no injustice because all wrongs will be made right. And all sin will be paid for. And God will be glorified for all eternity for making things right and being just. That's the truth. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve God's worst. But God became a man. He was given the name Jesus of Nazareth. He walked this earth perfectly. Not like you and I, Cohen, not like us, buddy. He walked it perfectly. You know those commands, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. We never do those things, and Jesus did them every day. Day and night for 33 years. He was falsely accused at his trial. It was lie after lie after lie after lie presented. This mock trial took place at night. He was handed over to the Romans. He was put on the cross. He died this terrible physical death with his nails put through his wrist and through his feet, and he suffocated on the cross as people mocked and spit and made fun. He died this terrible physical death, but that wasn't the worst part of it. The worst part of it, for the first time ever, he was separated from the Father, and the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son. For all of, for all of us that are believers, he, he received the wrath that we deserved. He died, he was buried, put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a rich man. He was there three days, he rose from the, the dead. He was rose. He rose from the dead. He was raised for our. The Bible says for our justification. Some people say, "Well, it means just as if we've never sinned." Uh, I kind of see that, but it's better if you say just as we've always obeyed. Isn't that better? And what that means is, Jesus, if we repent and we return from our sin and we trust the work that Christ did on the cross that he died on the cross for me for you and you believe he, he rose from the dead for you the Bible says that you'll be reconciled to God and you'll be given Christ's record his righteousness see he lived the 33 some odd years loving God with all his heart soul mind and strength and loving his neighbor as himself he did that perfectly we need that record that's the only way we can know God and have a relationship with Him. That's the gospel. That's what 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 talks about. Have you repented and trusted Christ? Has the incarnation of our Lord had any effect in your life? If you say no, I want to encourage you to repent and believe today. If you're like, I really don't know exactly how to do that, well, I'd love to talk to you about that. There's a lot of folks in here who have a testimony, who've been changed by the incarnation, and they would love to talk to you about what Jesus can do for you. Please talk to me today. God wants to be gracious to you. He wants you to know Him. We encourage you to repent and believe. That's what Jesus commands us to do. 
maybe if we're believers, by way of application, we can just think back and, again, marvel, meditate on all that God has done in redemptive history, all the things he said he would do, and how they find their yes in Christ, the one who took on flesh in Bethlehem, was raised in Nazareth, and the one who went to the cross in Jerusalem and rose on the third day. It's Christmas time, the most wonderful time of the year. And it's wonderful for all the things we said before, the parties and the reunions and the festivities and the music. We love music. My wife, she wants to listen to Christmas music every day. But I don't let her. Lord don't want me to Lord don't want her to do that, right? No, it's after Thanksgiving you start listening to Christmas music, right? Because that's what makes it special. So we started listening to Christmas music. And it's just fun. Putting up Christmas trees. We started doing that. I don't know why my wife wanted to start doing that about eight when I go to bed about nine. Didn't 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 you know the, the two ideas didn't quite, you know, exactly jihaw there. But uh, we gotta finish putting up the Christmas tree today. But it's just fun doing all that stuff, you know, and buying presents for people and blessing people, making cookies. To, and taking to your elderly neighbors. Isn't that fun? That's wonderful stuff. But the most wonderful part of Christmas is we get to sing these true songs about Jesus taking on flesh, the incarnation, and the effect it's had on our lives. That's what makes Christmas wonderful. And another thing that makes Christmas wonderful is it's just an easier opportunity for you to share. Students, kids, it's easier to share the gospel around Christmas. And those of you that are working in your workplace, it's easier to share the gospel at Christmas. You can point them to Christmas and all that you've learned. Tomorrow morning, you ask them, hey, what did you learn at church yesterday? Well, folks that don't go to church, of course, they didn't learn anything, right? You say, hey, this is what we learned. We talked about the prophecies and the things that God said would happen and how they happened. Just as he said they would. We're talking about the incarnation. You can explain what that means. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful time to be a follower of Jesus and to be a minister of reconciliation, telling people what Jesus did, why he came to earth, and how that can impact and change their lives. Let's pray. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going we're to sing us out of the building this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And, and Lord, we thank you for these prophets who spoke uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and how we can read those foretellings and see how in the new covenant those things came to pass. We're thankful for Jesus who took on flesh and lived for us, obeyed for us, and died for us. And Father, because of your mercy, so many of us here in this building, so many of us here are called righteous. Father, we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful for the testimonies represented here in this room and the impact Christ has had on our lives. And Father, we rejoice and we're thankful even more during this special time of the year. But Lord, for those who are here, who are at enmity with you, they're like, oh, sorry, King Ahaz. He didn't, he didn't care what your will for his life was. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And Lord, there's so many here that maybe they're like that. 
they've been living lives for themselves and they're at enmity with you. Father, I pray that you would allow the truth of the gospel they've heard today or use it miraculously to open their eyes and their ears so they could see how wonderful you are and see how desperately they need Jesus. Father, may you grant lost people repentance today, whether they be a, a child or a student or an adult. Save lost souls today. We are thankful, Father, for this season, and we ask that you would use us to be ministers of reconciliation in our homes, in our workplaces, at the ball field, at the gym. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.